Welcome back to the second half of this ooh, rather epic episode of Words and Movies. I hope you had a restful break. I did. So let's talk about another piece of German history with the Bader-Meinhof complex, which Claude will now give us the plot for. Yes, indeed. We are told up front that this film is based on a true story, and we open up on a nude beach in Germany in the late 1960s, where we are introduced to Ulrike Meinhof, a respected journalist, and her family. Meinhof and her husband are there later on guests at a party where Meinhof reads off a piece that she uh, had recently had published about the injustice of the Iranian government. With the Shah of Iran arriving into Berlin, there is a rally in the streets where half the people are protesting the Shah and the other half are praising him. And as the protest continues, the Iranian people end up going into the crowd and fighting the German protesters. As the fighting escalates, the German police finally intervene, but it's to beat down the protesters, leaving many injured and a man killed. The next of scene. Of course, that would never happen in a free country. No, 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 of course not. No, no. The next scene we have is Meinhof at a television studio arguing why she favors the protester's side instead of the government's side. And watching this t discussion on the television is Gudrun Enslin, another activist. She explains to her parents how American imperialism is completely corrupt. What? Meinhof walks in on her husband having sex with another woman, and in fact, it was one of the people who invited her to the party. So she takes the kids and she leaves. Next. We are introduced to Andreas Bader, the ringleader of these revolutionaries who decide to name themselves the Red Army Faction, or RAF. Their first major act of rebellion takes place in a department store where they detonate homemade incendiary devices. On a television broadcast, we are informed of the many student protests at universities across America and of protests in West Germany being led by somebody named Rudy Dutschke. From there, we go to a rally where Dutschke announces his views on the protest and wars occurring around the world, trying to spark everyone to join their resistance. And shortly afterward, Dutschke is almost assassinated by a man who is accused to be from the Springer Group, which is tied to the German government. In fact, I'm sure most viewers would be amazed to learn that he survived this attack at all, considering how many bullets he took and that a couple of them were to his head. But... At any rate, activists go to the Springer Group headquarters and riot, and we also learn in this sequence that there are protesters rioting all around the world. Bader and Enslin are in court confessing to the department store fire, and as her parents talk about their reactions to her activities uh, with a reporter, Meinhof eavesdrops and takes great interest in what they have to say about Enslin. So, Meinhof decides to visit her in jail and finds out that she is dedicated to fighting back against the German state. The next scene will introduce Peter Book, a young activist who was badly beaten for fighting back with police in jail, and we see that the RAF now has a safe house for everyone to stay in. With the new Chancellor of Germany claiming that the rebellion will diminish soon, a man who runs the terrorist unit disagrees, stating he believes it's only going to get worse. Uh, Bader and Enslin rather leave Germany and they go to Italy in uh, 1970 where they meet their lawyer to talk about some things. He suggests that they come back to Berlin, which would be an illegal action, but he says a new revolutionary group is formed and they have access to weapons, guns, money, all kinds of things. And to make sure that the lawyer is not all talk, Bader demands that he steal a woman's purse, which he does, but irony strikes only moments later when Bader's car is stolen. Bader and Enslin head to Berlin where they go to 
Meinhof's house to crash, saying that they've come back to Germany to change the political situation or die trying. As Bader speeds down the freeway in a stolen car, he gets pulled over and taken to prison because obviously he's a wanted man. Meinhof sets up a fake interview with Bader at a social institute. Enslin and the others plan on raiding the place with guns so that Bader can escape, and while it doesn't go smoothly, the operation is a success. As everyone escapes out the window, there's a moment of calm as Meinhof surveys what just happened, and then she jumps out the window after the revolutionists instead of just sitting in the room pretending not to know what happened. The escape is publicized heavily on German television, calling Bader, Enslin, and Meinhof terrorists, and they run to Jordan to get to some military training. After the training, they head back to West Berlin, where they rob several banks in very quick sequence, using the skills that they learned in Jordan. We then get a montage sequence of robberies, confrontations with police, news reports, and some political exposition, along with suggestions that some of them have been captured. The Bader-Meinhof group is declared Germany's most wanted, but it's also noted that one in four Germans under the age of 30 sympathize with them politically, which could make it tough for them to be located and brought to justice. However, the terrorist unit thinks that they can find the group mathematically by using government official reports because it will inevitably lead to where the group is living. The next scene is a turning point when two members of the group are killed in a shootout with police after they try to evade a police blockade. Uh, the Bader Monhoff group, seeing the news on television, declares that to be war and goes ahead and sets off bombs at police headquarters, the U.S. Embassy, and other government buildings over Meinhof's protestations. Unfortunately, civilians are being killed and injured, in part because the advance warnings that the group are giving sometimes go ignored. The West German government decides to have all government officials placed under federal control for one day nationwide so that they can track down the remaining members of the RAF. While trying to retrieve bomb materials from a garage, Bader and a couple of RAF members are arrested. Shortly thereafter, Enslin also gets arrested while she's out shopping for some new clothes, and Meinhof gets arrested when police raid their hideout. While still in prison, all the major members of the RAF are separated and put into isolation. Enslin fortunately gets to keep all her eye makeup. It's 1972. On television, everybody watches the tragedies that happened at the Munich Olympic Games with the Israeli team, and it stuns Germany who are forced to admit that this violent state is not over yet. We cut to seven months later, where Meinhof announces in a press conference flanked by her lawyer about how life in prison is the absolute worst, so the whole group is going to go on a hunger strike, demanding that they get better treatment just because they are political revolutionists. This mostly just leads to them being force-fed pureed food through a tube pushed down their throats. Jump again, 1974. Holger Mines, who is dying in jail, does not get any help from a doctor to try to save his life. He tells his lawyer they're allowing him to die, and in fact, that's exactly what happens to him. Shortly thereafter, the president of the high court is assassinated by the RAF. With the RAF trial approaching, we learn that the group members have been moved so that they're all in the same prison in a maximum security unit. Meanwhile, new revolutionary members storm the German embassy in Stockholm to demonstrate that this war is not over. However, the operation fails badly in the end. Only a few people are killed, but five revolutionaries were arrested and handed over to the German government. Bader, seeing the news, is very upset, and when the trial begins, he declares that he's incapable of standing trial, for he cannot cooperate with the government, and what's more, the attorneys appointed to defend him aren't communicating with him at all. With much of the argument being about their having been isolated for the past three years, they finally allow Meinhof to share a cell with Enslin, but it goes sour when Meinhof realizes Enslin is changing everything she's writing, 
because she calls it depressing. While the remaining members meet on the rooftop of the prison, they determine that they're going to have to get out of the prison or else they're going to be killed by the government. The group isn't helping their case, however, as they simply become more disruptive as time goes by. We time jump yet again to February 1976, and things are looking really bad for the three inmates, especially Meinhof, who has grown distant from the rest of the group. She observes during trial that in solitary confinement, the only way to show one has changed is betrayal, and in fact, the others think she has done that to the RAF. Shortly thereafter, Meinhof is reportedly found dead in her cell, having hanged herself. We don't see this happen. We just hear a news report. And based on what she'd been saying, it's possible, even likely. But the RAF members declare in the trial she was executed. With the RAF trial getting lots of hype in the media, Germany decides to transfer other RAF members to the same prison as Enslin and Bader. Uh, one of them, Brigitte Monhaupt will be released within seven months of being there. When she gets out, she immediately goes back to the underground. Monhaupt launches a plan to get uh, Bader and Enslin out of prison, reasoning that they will end up dead like the others. Immediately, numerous officials are killed because the RAF considers one of them to be responsible for the deaths of the members in prison. Another one was supposed to be kidnapped, but instead he's killed when he resists. The prisoners send out a secret code to the current RAF members that they have a little bit of time left because they think they're going to be killed shortly. The RAF sets up a plan to kidnap an important government official so that they have a hostage. This plan will involve killing his entire entourage. The plan works, but of course it's a bloody massacre. The police decide to take away all communication from the prisoners and cut off their electricity so they have no idea what's going on. At least at first, they managed to get some radios smuggled in. Two members of the RAF go down to Iraq and they arrange for a plane hijacking together, making a public scene of demanding release of the prisoners in exchange for the release of the passengers and the government official. The plane makes an emergency landing in Yemen and then takes off for Sudan. In a scene that cuts between the two interrogation rooms, um, Bader notes that they don't have any more influence on the RAF because these new terrorists are just so far removed from them from the standpoint of their tactics. Enslin, who is meeting with the prison chaplain, says that someone from the outside is almost certainly going to come kill them. We hear a news report that a counterterrorism group has stormed the plane and released all the hostages. It appears that only one RAF member survived the operation. The next morning, all 11 of the RAF members in the prison are found dead. The film ends with the new generation RAF members taking the kidnapped man into the forest and executing him. Smash cut to the credits, and after a few seconds of credit music that's entirely drums, we hear Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind. Okay, so this is based on a book by a guy by the name of Stefan Aust. Uh, he's actually portrayed in the movie, although a minor part, by an actor by the name of Volker Bruck. And he's the one who helps Spirit Meinhof's children away so that they can go live with her ex at one point. But while he is certainly in the book, and I believe the movie follows suit, though not everyone agreed, and I'm going to get to that in a moment, he's certainly critical of the methods that the Bader-Meinhof uh, group or Red Army faction, whichever you want to call them, uh, used in carrying out their um, act, their mission, 
or whatever they're called that he does show an understanding. And I think the movie does too, of why they formed in the first place. The book goes a lot deeper into this than the movie, but not only was the German government, along with a lot of other Western governments, supporting tyrannical governments as long as they weren't communist, like, as we see uh, early on in the movie, the Shah of Iran. But it was also felt that the German government at the time was maybe not putting the Nazism of the past behind them as everyone pretended they were. There were still quite a few ex-Nazis or ex-Nazi sympathizers who were in power. Um, Kurt George Klesinger, who was the chancellor in the West German government at the time, was an ex-Nazi, and other people were like that. And there were fears that the Nazis would come back and take power. And if you think that they were just making this up um, out of thin air, fiction writers at the time were writing novels about the idea that the Nazis were still entrenched in Germany, as in Jean Le Carre's novel, A Small Town in Germany, or threatening to come back, as in Frederick Forsyth's novel, The Odessa File, which was later made into a movie starring Jean Voigt. And Oust pointed this out on the documentary that's included in the DVD that I own of this, something that I, for some reason, even though I'm a history major, this did not occur to me, but the Red Army faction, along with other government, uh, other um, self-styled revolutionary groups who were actually terrorists, who were in the uh, capitalist world, the um, Italian Red Army and the Japanese Red Army, both of which started in the 60s-70s, what did they all have in common? They all sprung up in countries that were part of the Axis during World War II. Mm. And all of them were basically saying, hey, uh, uh, governments of Germany, Italy, and Japan, you have still not come to terms with what you all did during World War II, and you need to right now. Of course, as I said, while those... Uh, feelings are certainly understandable and, you know, something that I uh, certainly share from as much as I've read. The methods that they use to carry out those feelings 
are, of course, despicable because they were harming innocent people. And although there were was criticism when this movie came out from family members of those who had been killed by RAF members, that Uli Edel and the screenwriter, who also was the producer, Bernard Erringer, were in fact glamorizing the RAF. And again, as with the criticism coming from East, 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 um, people who had lived in East Germany uh, during the time that the lives of others was sat, you know, that's certainly understandable criticism that they, I understand how they could feel that way. All I can say is to my uh, Western eyes, I felt that Edel and Erringer were not glamorizing the um, RAF or the Bader-Meinhof group, but portraying them again, with a documentary eye, just letting them hang themselves with their own actions, as it were. What about you, Claude? Did you like this, or did you feel that it was uh, a glamorized portrayal? Uh, Maybe only a little bit, because there were a couple of times when you sort of felt yourself rooting for them, and that clearly wasn't what was intended. And, And so... To, to a certain extent, yes. Uh, but I think they were fairly even-handed about it. Because, like, for instance, like, Bader himself was, like, he, throughout this film, was kind of a hothead. And at the same... And, and, and Meinhof could be a little bit of, a, like, a tempering influence on him from for the most part. Um, but he also had a certain um, code about him. And, and, and we didn't always get that until close to the end where he said, look, we got no control over the new generation of RAF because our intent was never to kill civilians, you know? And, and, and so, um, I, I think that was kind of interesting because he seemed to just like everything he did was at the top of his lungs. It, it, it's like, you know, we have to do this. We have to take immediate action. And even when he's in Jordan and he's supposed to be learning how to do things a little bit more efficiently, you know, they're like teaching him, like, you got to crawl under the barbed wire and you got to do this thing. And he's like, F this noise. I'm not doing that. Like, you know, this isn't what we're about. We're going to be robbing banks. We're going to be doing this stuff. We're going to be doing that stuff. That's the stuff we need to learn. And so everything was a little bit of an argument with this guy and and so it it, so it was kind of interesting when you balance his like loud moments against his quiet moments and and you realize you know this is not a person who is entirely hothead he does have like a certain political philosophy and he has thought about this stuff and he can if he chooses to articulate himself very well and so I think because we spend so much time with the group, I mean, maybe we're getting a little Stockholm syndrome here that we're kind of identifying with them and following them along. And there's going to be a good outcome for somebody in this film. Right. 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 Please. Right. Not if (laughs) you know the history. Yeah. If you know the history, not so much. No. Well, I'm going to get back to the dynamics of the three people in charge in a moment. First, I do want to mention real quick the plane heist that uh, you mentioned in the um, in the plot summary. Toward the end, is the Lufthansa. Uh, That is arguably, or not 
is it the Lufthansa? Uh, yeah, Lufthansa. Seven, yeah, that is arguably the most famous air airline hijacking that ever occurred, at least in the 20th century. There have been quite a few movies that have been made about that, including the most recent one, uh, Seven Days in Antamb, Anteb with uh, Daniel Bruhl and Tebby and and Tebby, sorry, and Rosamund Pike playing two of the terrorists on board, and Eddie Marsan, who you might know best from Mike Lee's movies, playing an Israeli minister, uh, which is not as good a movie, I feel, as the Bader-Meinhof complex. But the point is, that story has been told many times before. Now, uh, before I get back to the dynamics of the three people in charge of the Bader-Meinhof group, which also includes uh, Gudrun Enslin, who's played by Johanna Wakalek, um the interesting thing about this movie, as opposed to other movies dealing with an extremist group and someone who's sort of a more or has an extremist viewpoint and someone of a more liberal minded bent who nonetheless is offering words of wisdom the person in that regard who is playing that role here is the head of the government or police task force trying to stop the Bader-Meinhof group, Horst Herold, who's played by Bruno Ganz, who um, in his career was best known until a certain movie in 2004 called Downfall for being a frequent collaborator of Vim Vendors. But when he played Hitler in Downfall, even if you've never seen the movie, you've probably seen all those YouTube parody videos of Hitler reacting uh, to various things that have nothing to do with what he's actually having a meltdown about in the movie. But anyway, that Horst Herold is a real person here. He's not a composite character. But that type of character normally is portrayed as someone who's sort of weak-willed. And that's why the extremists um, are there. They score points off of him. But Horst Herold... Harold, in uh, Stefan Aus's book and also in the movie, he's not weak-willed at all. You know, he is all about clamping down and capturing the Bader-Meinhof group, but throughout he is urging his superiors to take seriously Mm -hmm. what the Bader-Meinhof group are complaining about because he says, you know, maybe if we do that, we can avoid these terrorist acts from happening. And he 
deliver and Bruno Gans, by the way, is really good in the role, delivering that in a calm, rational, yet strong-willed way. And the fact that his superiors don't take him seriously at all, you know, in a they just want to be, you know, the equivalent of tough on crime, mm-hmm. you know, makes you realize, you know, just how out of touch the West German government was at the time. And so the only other movies that I can think of where this type of character is portrayed not as a, you know, a weak world type patsy character are two radically different movies. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard's La Chinois, there's a character who's someone like that who shares a train ride with a terrorist who's planning to blow up a university. And while Godard is, by this point in his career, was sympathetic to the uh, Maoist, who the movie is about, he also finds time to sympathize with this guy who's saying, well, what's that, what's what you're going to do, going to accomplish here? And he comes off as um, a fully interesting character. And then also, again, radically different movie and not as good as either of these two movies, Antonia Bird's Priest, where you've got Robert Carlyle as the closeted gay, but nonetheless uh, old-school hardline priest of the title. And then you have Tom Wilkinson, by contrast, as the more liberal priest who is actually sleeping around with a woman. And yet, you know, he's not a one-note character. He's very interesting as well. So I think that's part of what I would use as the argument about any idea that the argument against the idea that this movie glamorizes the um, Bader-Meinhof group by showing that there is a good alternative out there. Mm-hmm. It's just that no one on either side was listening. And again, Gans does a very good job of portraying that. Yeah, and then when you, when you get right down to it, it's also, you know, they, they they could come in like guns ablazing on trying to find this group, and they say no. There's a better way to do that, and at least that that's the the route that they take. Is like we can be a little bit more meticulous about this, and and so they start like and like and and I kind of glossed over it when I said they're going to do it mathematically, but it's a very systematic kind of thing. They they figure like well these guys are stealing money because and they're paying cash for everything, and so it's this many people who pay cash for their light bill, and this many people who pay cash for this, and we can eliminate these people because you know what we like you know mothers, and we can eliminate people who are paying child support, and we can da 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 da, da and basically start to narrow it down to a very small subset of people because they start out with, I think it was like 16,000 people and they were able to like pare it down to a relatively small number. And the next thing you know, you know, the top three ringleaders are, are picked up in, in quick succession because they were able to do that. And, and so, you know, there, there was, it was just a very like smart tactic for, for getting those people picked up finally. Right. Now let's get back to those ringleaders here. Now, um, Moritz Bliebtreu plays um, Bader. Mm-hmm. Now, um, 
you might know him from movies like Run Lola Run, where he's the boyfriend yeah. that the title character is trying to save and fails twice, but saves the one time, which is all that she needs. Oh, spoiler. And um, then he was also in a movie made by the director of um, Downfall, Das Experiment, or The Experiment, which basically asked the question, what if some idiot decided, after looking at the research of the infamous Stanford prison experiment, said, hey, what a good idea. Let's try it. And goes I, I appreciate your translating that title for us. <laughs> goes into the um, category of movies that I think are brilliant that I never want to watch again as long as I live. Mm. Also included are the David Cronenberg remake of The Fly, Requiem for a Dream, and the South Korean horror movie Audition, which should give you an idea of just how harrowing the movie is. And he's also in Steven Spielberg's Munich, which is about the attack at the 1972 Olympics. And um, Meinhof is played by uh, Martina Gadeck. And as I mentioned, uh, Gudrun Enslin is played by Johanna Wokolek, who is the one actress that who is the one actor of the three that I was not familiar with at all before I saw this movie. And maybe partly because of that, hers is the performance that impressed me the most. And to understand why, let's talk a little about the dynamic between the three of them. As you sort of hint at, but didn't really get into... Um, Bader is somewhat of a dilettante, mm -hmm. you know, he has to have done things his way or the highway. He, as much as he may spout revolutionary, um, talk, uh, when it comes to walking the walk, he may not always do that if it disrupts his feelings. Whereas insulin is the fanatic among the group, but at the same time, she's the one who, when Bader is uh, spouting off at the folks in Jordan who are trying to teach him, she's the one who intervenes and makes peace between the two of them. You know, she's the one who's willing to respect how they uh, want women to dress, for example. You know, she's not go going to be going out there, you know, nude, uh, while uh, Bader is like, screw that. If women, German women want to appear nude, I don't care what you all think, what your religion says. You know, we're doing it my way or the highway. And then also when Bader is not quite... Um, not quite communicative with the rest of the the lower members of the group. She's the one who takes charge there, while at the same time, 
you know, she does defer to him since they are sleeping together, even though she is willing to stand up to him when she thinks he's wrong, but at the same time, not in an overly confrontational manner. Well, at the same time with the rest of the world, especially with her family, she is very confrontational. And then you have Meinhof, who is the uh, theatrician of the group. You know, she's the one who you can tell actually read Das Kapital and the Communist Manifesto cover to cover um, before joining the group. And she, although she does have conflicted feelings about her family, she does, you know, eventually cross the Rubicon when she could have stayed and pretended that she didn't know what was happening when Bader and Anselin are busted out of jail, but then decides to go off with them. At the same time, she's so doctrinaire that Anselin and Bader are like, all right, enough already. <laughs> yeah. So it's a very interesting group dynamic you've got there among the three of them. And I think Adele and Erringer portray it in a complex manner. And I think the three actors, especially, as I said, Vokalek, do a terrific job of portraying that as well. I know, Claude, you made an illusion about the eyeshadow that Enslin is always wearing, even when she is in jail. But that sort of contributes to her character, I mm -hmm. think. So I think, you know, as I said, in all aspects, the dynamic among the three of them is well portrayed. Yeah, it is. It is it's kind of interesting because really when you get down to it, it's Botter and Enslin's group, you know, but Meinhof becoming kind of the face of the group because she is the writer and because, you know, she is perhaps the most politically educated of the three and able to speak in a very specific kind of language that the group becomes associated with her rather than Enslin. So it's, so it's not the Bader Enslin group, it's the Bader Meinhof group. And, and that strikes me as kind of interesting because she is kind of like the, 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 Almost like if you took Bader and Enslin together, you would get Meinhof. Um, but but Enslin, as you mentioned, as you know, the go-between between Bader and the the Arabs in in Jordan, and the and between Bader and the rest of the group when he's not being communicative. Well, I mean, part of that is also because she's also the multilinguist as well. Okay, so you know, Bader can't communicate with the Arabs because he doesn't speak Arabic, all right? And he doesn't speak, well, I mean, she's using English, and I presume that's actually what she's speaking. Uh, for I, I don't know why, but I, I do. But, but whatever she's speaking to the Arabs, that's what she's speaking is English. And, and so, um, you know, she almost becomes like his translator in, multi, in multiple contexts, even when we're all speaking German. And I found that, that kind of interesting. Like she's just the, 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 they're like two halves of a, of a whole. And that sort of comes together in Meinhof. Right. But at the same time, you know, she's not just a plot function. Oh no, 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 not, you know, not by any chance. A no. Interesting character on her own. Now, um, 
Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, when she's inviting a teenager into the bathtub with her and it's like, not a big deal. I mean, she's not there to seduce him. It's like, he needs a bath. She's like, yeah, no, who cares? Yeah. And, um, you know, that's the one time that Bader, you know, he comes in, he makes a show of, oh, don't go messing around with my girl. Mm -hmm. And then he says, uh, oh, who cares? Yeah, I'm just screwing with you. Get in the tub. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, which leads to another point I was going to make, which, you know, again, we've seen this now in pushbacks against the um, far left society in America, but um, that happened in the 1960s and early 1970s. The fact that even though the folks around you know, in these movements like the Weather Underground and the Students for the Less Radical, Students for Democratic Society, of which the Weather Underground was a more radical offspring, and other various non-revolutionary groups as well. And even, you know, places like the Black Panthers, um, you had this, for all this talk of a freer society, the women were meant to stay in the kitchen at all times. And there's a lot of sex institutional sexism among those groups as well. And we do see a little of that in Bader, which is interesting because there were a lot of women, as we see in the movie, who were involved in the Bader-Meinhof group just as there were a lot of women involved in the Italian Red Army and the Japanese Red Army. And it's not just Enslin and Meinhof who have major roles. There's also, you know, when they're all in jail, Brigitte Meinhof, who, by the way, is played by Nadja Ull, who was in another movie about a... uh, revolutionary uh, who participated in a revolutionary group that wasn't the Red Army faction, but a similar group, uh, Volker Schlondorf's The Legend of Rita, which is hard to find right now, but if you can find it, it's well worth watching. She has a small role in that. But her character is basically taking charge after the uh, three are arrested, or she's one of the people who's taking charge. And there are other women in the group who are taking charge. So even so you have the um, paradox of, you know, people like Meinhof, be, or not Meinhof, a Bader being sexist towards the woman. You know, he even actually makes a remark about, ah, woman, uh, when he's in jail and he's watching Enslin and Meinhof argue, yeah. while on the other hand, you've got women uh, heavily involved in things like this, including the Lufthansa hijacking. So that's an int- another interesting layer that Edel and Erringer add to this story. Yeah, they do. They do, and and it's also I. What's what's kind of interesting to me though is is I think that um, I think that Monhop basically gets to take over because she is recently sprung. She's been with the leader. She spent some time with them, a few months anyway, and so she comes out and 
uh, and, and, and basically gets to take over a little bit, but she is, as, as we, we hear like second generation RAF, and there might even be a third generation by the time this movie is over. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and so it, it, it's just kind of, kind of interesting that, that this is okay. So these are the ones who immediately that like the, the immediate inheritance. And, and so, but the thing is, as you get further away from that original group, that the, the, the means that they start using become different, that the, the aims maybe become a little bit different. And, and so, you know, I think Botter is absolutely right when he gets to that end. He's like, you know what? This isn't really the same group that we started with. And I, I really, I've got no control over these guys. And I think that's kind of what they were hoping he could do is like maybe even talk to them and say, look, you've got to end this situation with Lufthansa that's going on over here. You know, you, we've got to find some way of getting this guy returned to his family. And and he's like, it can't happen. I'm, I'm just, those aren't, those people aren't us anymore. And and it's just interesting how he kind of divorces himself away from that. And that the, that the three of them also recognize, you know, doesn't matter what's going to happen. We're, we're dead people. And that's just the way it's going to be. Right. Now, uh, we've talked a lot about the contents of the movie. Um, let's talk about the form. Although, before we get to that briefly, the other actor that I mentioned was in both this and Lives of Others, Thomas TM. He plays the trial judge right. in this movie. Now, um, one of the things that Edel uh, did in this movie, along with his cinematographer, Rainer Klausman, was shoot this uh, in a documentary style. And like um, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark with the lives of others, he tried to shoot at either real locations or locations that resembled the real location. So, for example, the place where the protest against the Shah was, that was a real location. The trial at Stanheim Prison, that was also the real location. And just as, Flor as uh, Von Donnersmark wanted the lives of others to look like it came from 1984. So Edel wanted to make this look like it came from that uh, we were actually in the 1970s. And so he immerses us with a lot of period detail without um, fetishizing it or going overboard into kitsch in any way. You know, these folks aren't wearing bell bottoms or <laughs> anything like that. And another th another way that the movie distinguishes itself in the way that it's done is with the music. Uh, there were two composers who worked on this movie, uh, Peter Hinderthur and Florian Tesloff, and they use a lot of percussion in mm -hmm. the movie to help create tension, just as a movie we talked about a few episodes ago, uh, Stalag 17, used a lot of percussion to create tension. And Edel also uses 
Western rock music to show the energy of the RAF as well as their youth. Now, it ends with blowing in the wind, but we also hear early in the movie, um, I think maybe over the opening credits, uh, Janis Joplin's song, Mercedes Benz. Although I don't know if that originated with her, that was a cover by her. Ah, uh, well, and then we, I can I can actually answer to that because I had an uh, episode of my show which did Mercedes Benz. So I don't remember the episode number. Go go look for it. But um, Mercedes Benz, yeah, it was it did it it was like a local song that she had she had heard somebody in a club play and she took it on and she wound up recording it. Um, it, it's kind of weird because what happened was there was a break in recording. They had run out of the big fat one inch tape that they were recording on, but the backup reel of quarter inch tape was still rolling. So while she was sitting there in the booth waiting for them to reload the tape, she sang out this ditty. So it's really just her and her sandal slapping on the floor as she's keeping time with it. And it was basically from her very last recording session before she died, which pegs it in October of 1970. And that's the thing that confused me a little bit because I was pretty sure that we were starting a little bit before that. So the song is actually anachronistic for the beginning of the film because the next piece of pop music we hear is the Beatles' Dizzy Miss Lizzie at the party, which dates back to 1965. Um, and then shortly after that, they're in the tunnel and they're driving at top speed. And we're hearing My Generation, which is also from a 1965. Cover, but it yeah, is a cover. Okay. It is a cover of the... Yeah, now, I, I was going to say, it's not The Who. Um, I'm not sure who it is, but but it's... Ha, 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 ha. No, ha. I, I just... I'm sorry. No pun intended there. But, but, um, but the song was written by them and first released in 1965. So... I know it was somewhere in the late 60s, and that's why I was kind of hazy about it when I mentioned it in the, in the synopsis. Um, but, but it's not long after that that the pop music kind of disappears, so we lose the rock and roll energy, and now we get into more tense sort of situations. Actually, uh, Dizzy Miss Lizzy is a cover version as well. Yeah, it's, well, no, okay. The Beatles it, it could be, covered. It's, it's a very... Covered, uh, Larry Williams song. Right, but their recording is from 1965. That was my intent. Yes, it, well, Larry Williams wrote and recorded have, in 1958. 58, so. yeah. They might have uh, recorded it back then, but remember, um, since the Beatles started out in Germany, they might have released it in Germany before that. So I don't know for sure, but... Mm, possibly. Um, anyway, uh, but the music does capture the, as I said, the energy of the RAF. Mm -hmm. And while Mercedes-Benz may be a little anachronistic, because it's playing over the opening credits, I believe, I kind of went with it. And also <laughs> because, as, I as you mentioned, the slapping of the sandal, you know, that adds to, that fits in with the percussive tone mm -hmm. of the score. So I didn't really mind the use of the song there. Now, um, before we wrap this up, I do want to mention that there have been a lot of movies dealing with the Bader-Meinhof group or other revolutionary groups that are self-styled, I should say, revolutionary groups that were going on in Germany at the time. Um, there's the 
this is the most direct of them, but there are also been movies like uh, Marianne and Julianne, where one of the characters is inspired by Enselin. And then, as I mentioned, The Legend of Rita, um, Carlos, the epic uh, movie directed by Olivier Isaias uh, about the terrorist known as Carlos, who was mistakenly nicknamed the Jackal, um, portrays at some point the Lufthansa heist. Mm -hmm. And then early in the mid-70s, Volker Schlondorf and his then-wife, Marguerite von Trotha, um, who also directed Marianne and Julian, by the way, did a movie called... The Lost Honor of Katerina Blum that is about the title character and how her life, get turned, life gets turned upside down when she goes out with a guy who is suspected of being a member of the RAF. Uh, Marguerite Von Trotta, excuse me. And as I said, she also directed... Marianne and Julianne. So if you know German movies, uh, the Bader-Meinhof complex, the Bader-Meinhof group is well-covered territory. Um, I don't know how... Oh, and then there's also the only Fassbender movie to date that I like somewhat, even though I have reservations about it, a movie from the late 70s called The Third Generation, uh, starring an actress who we're going to talk about in our next episode, Hannah Scheigola. Um, But that's about a self-styled revolutionary group as well, who, as it happens in the movie, is working in cahoots, though they're not quite aware of it, with big business interests in West Germany. But, well, as I said, I'm not sure how Bader-Meinhof Complex ranks within that group of movies, but I do think it's a very good movie. It is. It is definitely a good movie. It's a long movie. They're both long movies, but... Yes, that's another thing they have in common. They're both (laughs) over two hours, but not epic movies. Correct. So do you have anything else that you want to add before we wrap this up? I have two quick things, and then I have a question for you. Um, Uh The first thing is uh, I just wanted to bring up uh, way back in episode 18, we were looking at the film Without Limits, okay, the film about um, uh, Prefontaine, Steve Prefontaine. And that also dealt briefly with the Munich Olympics and the tragedy that happened there. And one of the things I said at that time was, gee, it's a shame that they didn't get the footage from ABC. And it turns out in this film, they did get it. That footage of Jim McKay looking directly into the camera and saying, they're all gone. And I thought that made a nice button on that part of the scene there. And I'm still a little, a little sad that it didn't appear in the other film. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you might have heard of something called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, which doesn't really have a lot to do with this particular group, except that... Um, it, it, it comes from, it's something called the frequency illusion, where if you hear about something or you learn a new word and all of a sudden you start seeing it 
everywhere where you had never heard of it before. And that actually goes back to somebody who heard of the Bader-Meinhof group for the first time in the mid-90s, and then all of a sudden he started seeing it everywhere. And the, the, the basically when this guy, he wrote a letter to a newspaper column, and the newspaper column got published, and other people started submitting their own experiences of similar events, and it became known as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. So there isn't any real connection to the group other than its appearance in this in this particular news story. Terry Mullen is the guy who wrote the letter. Okay, all right. Um, so and and so here's the question, and and here's the part I didn't quite get is. The title of the film, where, where do we get the word complex from? Why is it the Bader-Meinhof complex rather than the Bader-Meinhof group or the Bader-Meinhof gang or the Bader-Meinhof whatever else? I have no idea. <laughs> I thought having read the book, maybe it was something that... Like, uh, because the book is just called Bader-Meinhof. It's mm -hmm. not called the Bader-Meinhof complex. It's just called Bader-Meinhof. Uh, where they got complex from, who knows? All I know is that while Yuli Edel has had somewhat of an up-and-down career, on the upside, he did an adaptation of Last Exit to Brooklyn, which is also a movie that's very tough to watch but also good. And he did a movie with David Bowie playing himself called Christian F, which I've never seen, but is supposed to be very good. And then on the other hand, he did Body of Evidence. <laughs> uh, but this ranks as one of his really good movies. So anyway, unless you have anything else to add. No, this I guess this is the is part, part. <laughs> where we mention that both Lives of Others and Bader-Meinhof Complex are available on DVD, mm -hmm. though they're not cheap. They're also, as far as I remember, not prohibitively expensive if you want a physical copy, which I always encourage. But if you feel you have to watch it online, you can stream Lives of Others, you can rent Lives of Others or buy it through Amazon, Apple TV, Google Play, and most of the usual suspects of streaming services. As for the Bader-Meinhof Complex, you can stream it through uh, Plex, mm -hmm. And you can also rent or buy it only through Amazon or Google Play. And coming up next in our Around the World series, we're going to get off the soapbox and talk about hyperlink movies. Ooh. And also for the next five episodes of our Around the World series, we're not going to be talking about just one country at once. We're going to be talking about movies from two different countries. So for next week, the hyperlink movies we're going to be talking next episode, excuse me, the hyperlink movies we'll be talking about from Canada from 1994, though it was released in the U.S. in 1995, Exotica, written and directed by Adam O'Goyan, and from 2007, though it was released in the U.S. in 2008, The Edge, and from Turkey, The Edge of Heaven, written and directed by Fatih Akin. 
And both movies are available on DVD. Again, Exotica is available on Criterion DVD. But if you'd rather watch it streaming, Exotica is available to stream exclusively through the Criterion channel. And The Edge of Heaven is available to rent or buy exclusively from Amazon. Now, if you have a uh, comment or question or just want to say, hey, Sean, quit talking about politics so much and talk about the movie, you can leave a comment on our Facebook page, which is Words and Movies, or you can email, make a comment on our website, wordsandmovies.com, or you can email us through wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com and you can find myself sean gallagher on facebook you can find me on the book of face as well under my own name and you can also check out my other website and uh, rather podcast uh how good it is at howgooditis.com go look for mercedes benz it's a fun story okay well thanks for listening and we'll see you next time thank you very much rebecca please take us away This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Ophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare, and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to Anchor.fm slash Words and Movies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 